Welcome back. We're going to get started. We're going to be in Acts chapter 18 this morning. And so if you have a Bible, let me invite you to turn to Acts chapter 18. And we're going to look at verses 1 through 22. Uh, If you're new to church, this is the part of our weekly regular gathering where we take a particular passage of Scripture. And at this church, we we don't necessarily do topical series, but we mainly do uh, book by book, verse by verse, uh, over a long period of time. And so we've been in the book of Acts. Uh, This is our second year, our second season in the book of Acts. And so we are continuing. We've made it all the way up through chapter 17. And so today we're going to focus our attention on verses 1 through 22. I want to say thanks to Keith Leatherman, who filled in and preached uh, last week in Acts chapter 17 with Paul in Athens. And uh, grateful for him uh, stepping in and, and leading and teaching. I recently heard about a, a funny Get Well Soon card. When you opened it, it was just a long quote from the Apostle Paul. It said, I've been through far greater labors, far more imprisonments, with countless beatings, and often near death. Five times I received at the hands of the Jews the forty lashes minus one. Three times I was beaten with rods. One time I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was adrift at sea. On frequent journeys in danger from rivers and danger from robbers and danger from my own people, danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers, in toil and hardship through many a sleepless night, in hunger and thirst, often without food and cold and exposure. And apart from all these other things, there is the daily pressure of me on of my anxiety for all the churches. And on the other page it said, get well soon. <laughs> Maybe not a very encouraging uh, greeting card from Paul. I, I don't know how much compassion and empathy Paul could have for people if they were going through something, but... I think you can see from that quote from passage, that passage in 2 Corinthians that the ministry life for Paul was really, really hard, wasn't it? I know that many of you know what that's like. You've been in ministry roles. You've been in leadership positions on ministry teams. And, and there is not just the responsibility of what it is that you're supposed to do, but there's also the spiritual toll, uh, toll that takes it takes on your life. We often see this rhythm in the life of Jesus where he and his disciples would surge forward in ministry initiatives but then he would often withdraw and rest and be refreshed and you see that same rhythm in the life of Paul in Acts I can remember we had began to process the call to plant this church in 2011 early 2011 I felt called by the Lord to plant Ridgeline and and it was just between uh, me and the Lord at that time, and uh, uh, Charles called one morning and said, hey, I think God's called you to plant this church, and at the same time I was processing that same call, and we began to work. We began to meet at the Watson's house in their basement, and six or seven, eight families meeting together, doing core team training from 2011 to 2012, launched publicly in 2013. Uh, during that time, I went and um, and shared our mission and vision with uh, 30 or 40 different churches and denominational representatives and associations and sending agencies and trying to raise funds and gather um, partnerships for the gospel in that time. 
During the same time, we had about ten, uh, seven to ten mission teams every year, youth groups from all over the country that would come in, and we would host them and work with them and do an intense week of ministry and prayer walking and those kinds of things. By 2015, I was just exhausted. I just felt like I needed a break, you know. And so I'd been praying and asking God, please, if, I, if you could just get me a beach somewhere or a mountain. How many of you are beach people, right? How many of you go to the beach? How many of you are mountain people? You go to a mountain. How many of you are neither of those things? Anybody? Um, just looking for some kind of rest, something that could rejuvenate me. And, and at the same time I was praying for that, a friend of mine called from Dallas and he said, uh, I, I just took a new job in Atlanta and they need me there immediately, but I've already paid for this uh, 12-day trip to Israel. Would you mind taking my spot? And uh, so I had a couple weeks and I said, yeah, I can do that. And um, it was far from a beach and it was far from uh, uh, relaxing. What I thought I needed was totally different than what the Lord gave me. It was 12 full days from 5 a.m. in the morning to 11 p.m. at night of just nonstop travel and nonstop uh, fellowship and nonstop reading in the Word and seeing all these places. It was not a sip on a beach. It was a fire hydrant kind of drinking period, but it was exactly what I needed. Uh, I was 37 years old and somewhat fresh when I started Ridgeline. And I saw this uh, picture a few weeks ago. Um, that you can't see the words. It's cut off here. But this guy said, that, who says ministry is stressful? I'm 35 and I feel great. <laughs> That's kind of how I feel. Like I didn't have a single gray hair uh, 11 years ago, and, and now I have no hair, and the hair I do have is is full gray. Ministry can be an intense period. It can be difficult. And, and you know this. I'm not saying anything that, that you don't know. But I say all this to, to, to help you see and maybe kind of identify that when Paul rolls into Corinth, he's coming on the heels of a really difficult two to three years. It all started with some hope and joy and optimism, right? He and Barnabas, let's go see all the churches that we planted and encourage everybody with the Jerusalem Council and their decision. And, and then immediately, what happens? He and Barnabas have a sharp disagreement and they, they separate. Paul scrambles and the team is already off to a bad start and he takes Silas and they, they go into Asia and the Lord says, no, I don't want you to go into this area. So they seek to go into Bithynia, and the Lord says, no, I don't want you to go into that area. They pick up Timothy, and and then Luke jumps aboard, and they they go into Philippi after the Macedonian call. And and what happens in Philippi? They're met with a demonic girl, and Paul delivers her from that. And for his reward, he is beaten publicly and thrown in prison. It doesn't get any better in Thessalonica. It gets a little better in Berea, right, from Acts 16, but then the same people from Thessalonica that were jealous came and started a riot, and he had to flee in the middle of the night. And they just send him off to Athens. And so by the time Paul leaves Athens, it's been a couple years, and I think he's hurt, and I think he's having a difficult time. And I want you to see in our passage that we're going to read here that God does something unique for Paul. After a difficult season of ministry, effort, and initiative, and an intense period, God rejuvenates him. And he gives him refreshing, 
And he, he renews him. I don't know where you are today. Maybe it's been a difficult period of trials and difficulties. Maybe you've struggled. Maybe you've been through something really serious. Maybe it's a health issue or a, a family issue or a crisis or a mental issue or, or maybe there's something else in your life that has just been really difficult and severe. I want you to be encouraged today from this passage that God often gives us times of renewing and refreshing, and He does it in a specific way. And we're going to get to that in just a minute. Let's look at our text today. In Acts chapter 18, verse 1 says that after this, Paul left Athens and he went into Corinth. Corinth, uh, Corinth was about 46 miles away, and Paul went there after leaving Athens to proclaim the good news to this sort of commercial and immoral metropolis of Corinth. Let me just give you some information about Corinth so you have some some background about what Paul was walking into. The Romans had destroyed the city, the old city of Corinth, but Julius Caesar had built a brand new Corinth. There was not a single building over 100 years old uh, when Paul walked into that city. Corinth was the largest and the most cosmopolitan city of Greece. John Stott tells us that while the population of Ephesus was over a half a million, Corinth numbered nearly 750,000. Tim Keller puts this into some East Coast context for us. He says that Athens might have been like Boston, more of a philosophical or intellectual center. I don't know that we would say that about Boston. No offense if you're from Boston. Um, Corinth would be more like a New York City that included a lot of commerce. Ephesus would have been like a Los Angeles, a pop culture and a cult center. Maybe we would say that about Los Angeles. Rome would have been like Washington, D.C. as a political center. But that kind of gives us an insight where Corinth might have been more like this New York City kind of place in the Greek world. Corinth was a flourishing center of commerce, but also sexual immorality. There was a temple atop an 1,800-foot mountain, uh, and it was a a temple that promoted um, sexual immorality. Uh, Corinth was actually known for sexual promiscuity. In fact, the word to live like a Corinthian uh, came to mean to live immorally. But despite all that, it was a port city. And there was, I think there's a big map here. Oh, there it is. There was a a port here in Kincray and another one on the other side at Lacaine. And and ships would come in from all over the Roman Empire here and they would drag them across wooden beams across this uh, narrow isthmus here and, and off into other parts of the empire and so just like, I don't know if you've ever spent much time in a port city, but, um, but it, was, uh, it was big, it was busy, there were a lot of sailors and travelers, and so this is what Paul walked into. But I think we can get Paul's state of mind if we remember what he wrote to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians chapter 2. You don't necessarily need to turn there, but in, in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 1 through 5, I can read it for you. Paul says, when I came to you, uh, brothers, I did not come 
proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. Isn't that interesting? After what he'd been through in Philippi and what he'd been through in Thessalonica and after what he'd been through in Berea and Athens, Paul's posture toward the Corinthians was in weakness, in fear, and in much trembling. He says, My speech and my message were not with plausible words of wisdom, but a demonstration of the Spirit and of power, so that your faith may not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. There was something about Paul and his condition that when he got there, he was just on empty. And I think that's a beautiful thing because that's where God often uses people the most. Have you ever felt empty? I don't have anything left. I don't have anything to give. Lord, you've got to help me. I can't tell you how many times I've come to this um, building 5 o'clock, 6 o'clock in the morning on a Sunday and just said, Lord, if... If you don't do something, I don't know what's going to happen. I I don't even, this has not come together. This message or this thought or this, nothing is going to work unless you do something. It's like Paul wrote in 2 Corinthians 13, that God gave Paul a thorn in his flesh to keep him from becoming conceited. And and when Paul pleaded with God, please take this thorn from my flesh, he, he prayed this desperate prayer, God, please deliver me. And God said, my grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in your weakness. So Paul says, I'm going to boast about my weaknesses because when I'm weak, then I'm strong. This was uh, this is what took place when Paul walked into Corinth. We have uh, understanding of his spiritual state, of the state of the city, and we have an understanding of his emotional condition at the moment. Look at verse 2. <clears throat> Walks into Corinth and he found a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, who had recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla, because Claudius had commanded all the Jews to leave Rome, and he went to see them. And because he was of the same trade, he stayed with them and worked, for they were tent makers by trade. And he reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath, and he tried to persuade Jews and Greeks. Immediately God provides for Paul uh, co-workers, acquaintances that would soon become friends and ministry partners. A deeper level of friendship. A deeper level of kinship. They were of the same faith, of the same background, of the same occupation. And so he had this connection with them and they encouraged him. They're going to travel together in the future and do ministry together in the future as well. God provided him acquaintances and friends. Verse 5, Silas and Timothy still haven't come back, but it says now they, they finally caught up with Paul after they arrived from Macedonia. And when they found Paul, they had, remember they had been left in Berea, and then Paul went on to Athens and then to Corinth. And so Paul, uh, Timothy, and Silas were just uh, following along where he had already been. But then when they finally caught up to him in Corinth, it says that Paul was occupied with the Word. Isn't that a great phrase? Testifying to the Jews that Jesus was the Christ. Paul was occupied with the Word. It's been a phrase I've been thinking about all week. What are you occupied with? What captures your attention? What tabs are open on your browser? What what apps have you not closed out on your phone because they, they dominate your attention or your time? 
Sometimes I, uh, when I get home from work or late in the evening, when my mind is kind of mush, right? Uh, I'll just, I'll just search for five or six things that are always on my list, like camping gear or funny cars for my son. That I'll say, "Hey, well, you would look great in this, you know, this bus." Or you know, anyway, I'll just have these sort of ongoing marketplace searches or thrift store searches, just some things that I'm interested in. Just stuff that occupies my mind or my attention. It doesn't take a lot of time, and I don't invest a lot of time with it, but if I'm not careful, I could spend inordinate amounts of time on a hobby or on a something to occupy my mind or my attention. I could get obnoxious and even overly occupied, but I love this phrase that Paul was occupied with the Word, and I think it's a good challenge for us. A good reflection question. What are you occupied with? What dominates your time? What dominates your attention? What is it that you spend extra time researching, buying, looking at, shopping for? And is it in balance with with your occupation or your preoccupation with, with the Messiah and with His Word? Is that Matt Freed? That guy, man. He's so good with the kids, but I can always tell when it's either Matt or Swartley, right? Those guys in this room. That's awesome. If you didn't hear that, it was Matt barking at the kids right here. Verse 6. When they opposed and reviled Paul, he shook out his garments and he said to them, Your blood be on your own heads. I'm innocent. From now on, I will go to the Gentiles. It's almost a little bit of impatience. Listen, I've been through this in every city I've gone to, and, and there's, I don't have anything left, right? I don't have anything left to give. Uh, zero cares left. You know, if, if you're not going to listen, then I'm going to move on to the Gentiles. And, and how far did Paul go? Verse 7 says he went next door. <laughs> to Titius Justice, and and he shared the gospel, and Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue, believed in the Lord together with his entire household, and then many of the Corinthians, hearing Paul, believed and were baptized. He didn't go too far. Once they rejected him, the religious leaders that he went to there in Corinth, they opposed him, he shook out his garments, and he said, your blood be on your own heads. I'm innocent. Now, from now on, I'll go to the Gentiles. And he found right immediately uh, an open willingness for people to hear and respond to the gospel. And listen carefully in verses 9 through 11. This is where we see the Lord doing something um, uniquely refreshing for Paul. The Lord said to him one night in a vision, Do not be afraid, but keep on speaking and don't be silent. I am with you, and no one will attack you to harm you. For I have many in this city who are my people. And he stayed there a year and six months teaching the word of God among them. It's a great passage, maybe a focal passage of this section. 18 months of Bible teaching. God says, don't be afraid. Paul said, I came to you with weakness and in fear and in trembling. And in this vision, God says, don't be afraid. Listen, I know that your scars haven't even closed up from Philippi and the earthquake that rocked you out of the prison in the middle of the night and, and all the things that you went through you, emotionally, physically, you're still struggling with those things. But don't be afraid. Don't be silent. I'm here with you. No one will attack you. And I have many people in this city who are my people. Being refreshed by the people of God and by the Word of God, this is, um, we're going to talk about this more in a few minutes, but but I want to make this statement here. This is a reality in the kingdom of God that that He refreshes His people. 
by his word and by his people. I heard a quote this week at a conference I went to that that God is the father and the church is the mother. I'm still pondering that, but the way the presenter described it was within the church, there are these nurturing motherly like relationships where the church nurtures the faith of those. Of course, scripture calls the church the bride of Jesus. Still pondering that, but there is a reality to it that God refreshes people by people and by his word. Verse 12, when Gallio was proconsul of Achaia, the Jews made a united attack on Paul and brought him before the tribunal, saying, this man is persuading people to worship God contrary to the law. But right when Paul was about to open his mouth, right? Here we go again, Paul must have thought. Here we are, an attack. I'm being drugged before the officials. Maybe his back is already being tensed up from the beating he took already. But right before he's about to defend himself, Gallio says to the Jews, listen, if it were a matter of wrongdoing or some vicious crime, I would have reason to accept your complaint. But since this is a matter of questions about words and names and your own law, see to it yourselves. I refuse to be a judge of these things. And just like that, Paul was done, right? No beating, no prison. Hey, this is great. I like Corinth. Verse 17, they all seized Sosthenes, the ruler of the synagogue, and they beat him in front of the tribunal. But Gallio paid no attention to any of this. They tried to provoke him, and he didn't even care. So then verse 18, after this, Paul stayed many days longer, and then he took leave of the brothers, and he set sail for Syria. And with him, his new friends Priscilla and Aquila. At Kincray, he had his, uh, had his hair cut. He was under a vow. And when he came to Ephesus, he left Priscilla and Aquila there. But he himself went into the synagogue and he reasoned with the Jews. And when they asked him to stay for a longer period, he declined. But on taking leave of them, he said, I will return to you if God wills. And he set sail from Ephesus. So Paul was in Corinth for a total of 18 months with a fruitful season of rest and fruitful ministry there. He stopped off in Ephesus, but you remember in the beginning of this second missionary journey, he had been forbidden to even go there. And so he went the long way around to Philippi and Thessalonica and Berea and down into Athens and over to Corinth. But now he pops into Ephesus for just a short amount of time. And when we get to this next week in in the coming chapters, the ministry that he has in Ephesus on his third missionary journey is nothing short of remarkable, a real awakening. And we'll get to there in a few weeks. But for now, let's finish up the second missionary journey. Verse 22, when Paul had landed at Caesarea, he went up and he greeted the church. That means he went up to Jerusalem and he greeted the church and the apostles that are still there. And James, of course, the pastor of the church in Jerusalem. And then he went down Um, topographically right downhill to Antioch, though it's north of Jerusalem. And he's finally home after what could have been three years, years 49 to 52 is the time period of his second missionary journey. Jesus had just been uh, crucified and resurrected in 33 or so, 27, 30, somewhere in there. Um, So this isn't long after all that, that Paul had gone on these journeys He's finally home after a second missionary journey, sleeping in his own bed. You know that feeling when you've been on the road for a while and finally you get into your spot that has your impression, you know, in the mattress and in the pillow. 
surrounded by his own things, among his friends and his mentors and his close ministry partners in his home church in Antioch. Probably still healing from his physical wounds, but taking time to study and be refreshed and prepare for the next surge in ministry. And that's what we're going to get to next week in verse 23. After spending some time there, he departed from Antioch. And so we'll start that and we'll look at that next week. Let me give you a couple of things in conclusion here. Really focusing back in on verses 9 through 11, this vision that Paul had, this encouragement from God. I want to make the point in closing that God often gives his servants seasons of rest and refreshing after long seasons of trials and difficulties. We've described all that Paul went through. And we see this in other places in Scripture. Elijah after Mount Carmel, right? He is a wreck. He's just defeated the 450 prophets of Baal. There's this been long drought, and he's predicted that the rain will come, and the rain comes, and Jezebel says, because of what you did to the prophets of Baal, I'm going to kill you. And he, he, what does he do? He runs. He runs and he runs and he runs and he goes as far away as he can and and um, and and this this angel comes to him while he finds himself under a broom tree and in First Kings chapter nineteen the Lord says to Elijah or Elijah says to the Lord please let me die saying it's too much it's enough Lord please take away my life I'm no better than anyone in my life you hear the the tone in which Elijah is is. Speaking out of this mental anguish and anxiety. And so he lay down and he slept. By the way, one of the greatest things that you can do is get rest when you're exhausted. And behold, an angel touched him and said to him, get up and eat. And he looked and behold, there was a, at his head a cake that had been baked on hot stones and a jar of water. And he ate and he drank and he laid down again. Isn't that good? When you're tired, when you're mentally out of it, this is the greatest thing you can do is just sleep and eat, get something to drink and go back to sleep, right? I used to go on uh, two retreats a year and my mentor, Pastor Craig, whenever he would go on a retreat in the early 2000s and I was on staff there, I'd say, well, what's your routine? He said, I would, I would just get there and I would sleep as long as I could and I would wake up and I would read as much scripture as I could and then I'd go do something physical for as long as I could, and then I would just repeat it. Right? In these sort of eight or six hour cycles, just sleep, rest, eat, uh, read scripture, and then repeat the process after doing something physical. This is a good way to retreat and be refreshed. So he arose, and he ate, and he drank again, and then he was able to go in the strength of that food for 40 days and 40 nights to Horeb, to the mountain of God. And he, there in that cave, remember what he was saying? He put his cloak around his head and he said, Lord, I'm the only one left. I'm, no one else cares. I'm the only one left having kind of a selfish pity party. And, and, and God brings him to the mouth of this cave and all of a sudden there's this great wind that breaks up the rocks all around him and there's this great fire that falls all around him. And then there's this great earthquake that rattles everything. And, and yet in the midst of all those three supernatural events, uh, it says that there came the whisper of God. God began to whisper to him. Wouldn't that be terrifying? Earthquakes and fires and winds tearing rocks apart. And yet the Lord whispers to him and encourages him, speaking to him and reassured him that there are 7,000 who have not bowed the knee to Baal. 
Jesus, after a long season of ministry surges, sent out the disciples. In Mark chapter 6, he sent them all out to preach the gospel and to teach and to heal. And then in Mark chapter 6, verse 30, it says, The apostles returned to Jesus, and they told him all that they had done and taught. And he said to them, Let's get away by ourselves to a desolate place so that we can rest for a while. Because so many people were coming and going that they didn't even have time even to eat. And so Jesus took them and put them in a boat and they went to a desolate place by themselves. Something happens when you reach a level of exhaustion from intense periods of trials and difficulties. Uh, You begin to almost focus on what do I need to do to get through today? What do I need to do to get through this next hour? If you've ever had a severe enough trial like that. And one of the first things that goes is this ability to look forward. What am I hoping for? And once hope is gone and you reach a state of hopelessness that something good can happen next, then you reach a kind of a lower level of despair that nothing ever good is going to happen and nothing is ever going to turn around. This week I've been meditating on Psalm 126. And verse 1 says, When the Lord restored our fortunes, we became like those who could dream. Isn't that special? All of a sudden, God is doing something renewing and refreshing and revitalizing that they could now get out of this pit of despair and out of a place of hopelessness and, and not into just a place of hope, but, but a place of dreaming where anything is possible, that they're like people who dream. It says in verse 2 of Psalm 126, Then our mouth was filled with laughter and our tongues with shouts of joy, and we shouted to the nations, The Lord has done great things for them. The Lord has done great things for us, and we are glad. Those who sow in tears shall reap with shouts of joy. The one who goes out weeping, bearing the seed for sowing, shall come home with shouts of joy, bringing the sheaves with him. Well, let's get into the practical side and then we'll close. How? How does God renew Paul? How does he get rejuvenated? How does he get refreshed? There are three things I can see in this passage in First uh, in Acts 18, 1 through 22. Number one, God uses Paul in fruitful ministry. He uses Paul in fruitful ministry. He's being used by God to teach and preach and share the gospel, and people are being saved. And this may seem counterintuitive because Paul is exhausted by ministry. So what does God do? He puts him in a position to do more ministry. Amen, right? Have you ever been in the Sunday school class where you've taught the same group of elementary school kids for years? I mean, I haven't, but I can see your faces. That, you know, that's an exhausting sort of place to be in child care. Or have you ever been in a place where you're a greeter or you're just kind of in a ministry um, zone or lane for a long period of time? And, and in this way, um, it, it might just feel sort of day in, day out like a rut. But, but Paul goes into Corinth and he does the same ministry, but this time there is a sense in which God is using him in a different way and he's gaining fruit from it. You can read more about this in John chapter 4, where Jesus is so exhausted from the journey that he can't even go into the town in Samaria. Remember this? He, they, the disciples bring him along. It says they set him by a tree by the well, just as he was. There's the little phrase, just as he was, exhausted from the journey. He can't even go into town. They, they're, Jesus, you stay here. We're going to go into town. We'll get you some food. We'll, we'll take care of you. And they go into town. And while they're in town, a Samaritan woman comes out, and it's the middle of the day. It's not the normal time for drawing water, but, but Jesus asks her, can you, can you draw some water for me? And, and um, 
this conversation takes place. And, and as Jesus is talking to this woman, ministry, he starts to share the gospel. He starts to, and I'm the prophet. And he tells her all about his life. And, and this new life invades, this new energy kind of invades Jesus when he says, um, and the disciples come back. And in John 4, it says, when they come back, they, they urge him saying, Rabbi, eat. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you know nothing about. And the disciples said to each other, has somebody brought him something to eat? But Jesus said, my food is to do the will of the one who sent me and to accomplish his work. More ministry, more fruitful ministry, more spirit-filled ministry, more ministry that God uh, did the work gives us a hint at what Paul is experiencing. Some ministry can be really renewing when you're in the right place and you're doing the right thing and you're doing it according to your spiritual giftedness. You go up and work doesn't feel like work anymore. I often hear that people say they need a break from ministry, and I get that. I need breathers, right? Take those times of rest. Get away from ministry responsibilities for a season. But don't let yourself be sidelined for too long. You'll blink, and you'll look up, and five years will go by, and you'll just kind of be one of the critics on the sidelines that are watching people do ministry and saying, in my day, we would have done it better, or we would have done it this way. And we, Instead of helping, you become one of those people who are not engaged. When you need a break, take a break, but don't let yourself be there for too long. You may find yourself watching others do ministry from the sideline for years and miss out on the food that Jesus described in John 4. Number two, how did God use Refresh Paul? Through fruitful ministry engagement. Number two, God used His Word to bring rejuvenation. You can see in this passage the prominence of the Word of God. In verse 4, Paul is persuading Jews and Greeks with the Word. In verse 5, Paul is occupied with the Word. In verse 5, Paul is testifying about Jesus. In verse 7, Paul is sharing the Gospel at Titius Justice's house. In verses 9-10, through Paul's not just... um, Talking about the Word, he's experiencing God speaking to him in this vision. And then in verse 11, we learn that he stayed for 18 months teaching the Word of God to the Corinthians. If you're tired and weary and exhausted from a season of trials and difficulties, the last thing you should ever do is neglect the Word. In Deuteronomy chapter 8, God tells them, listen, I let you go hungry. I fed you with man in the wilderness, but I, I let you experience hunger so you could know that man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. God wanted to teach them that, that His word is more important than physical food. Listen, you can be sustained by God's word over long periods of time, but if you, you can become anemic if, you, if you're reading very little scripture. If you're not consuming the word on a regular basis, it is one of those spiritual disciplines that you don't need to neglect. When I was most tired, uh, when I first started Ridgeline, I was reading 12 chapters of Scripture every day. You know, not to pat myself on the back, like, big deal. But it, when I was in my weakest and my worst, I could hardly read a single verse a day. Just crawling, just give me a little drop of, you know. And that's on me. That was my own fault for neglecting to be in the Word. But trying to get in the Word every day just... If all I could do was a verse, it was like settling for crumbs when there's a banquet in front of me. Paul was renewed by the Word of God. So he was renewed by fruitful ministry. He was renewed by the Word. And then the third thing I'll leave us with is that God often uses brothers and sisters in Christ to refresh us after difficult seasons. 
God used other people. He connected with Priscilla and Aquila. He was reunited with Timothy and Silas. Uh, God told him that, hey, listen, I've got many people in this city. God used his own people to surround Paul, and, and it encouraged him. And this is a principle in Scripture. Paul writes about it in several of his other letters. In Romans 15.32, he says, "My, but maybe it's God's will that I can come to you with joy, and I can be refreshed in your company. In 1 Corinthians 16.17-18, Paul said, I rejoiced when uh, Stephanus and Fortunatus and Achaeus, uh, when they came, because they made up for your absence. They refreshed my spirit as well as yours. In 2 Corinthians 7, he says, Therefore we're comforted. Besides our own comfort, we rejoice still more at the joy of Titus, because his spirit was refreshed by you all. In 2 Timothy 1, 16-18, May the Lord grant mercy to the household of Anesiphorus, for he often refreshed me, and he was not ashamed of my chains. But when he arrived in Rome, he searched for me earnestly, and he found me. May the Lord grant him mercy from the Lord on that day, and may you well know the service that he rendered to us. Paul to Onesiphorus or to Philemon in, in uh, four and seven. He says, "I thank my God every time I remember you, because I hear of your love and of the faith that you have toward the Lord Jesus and for all the saints. And I pray that as you share your faith, you'll become effective for the full knowledge of every good thing that is in Christ Jesus. For I have derived much joy and comfort from your love, my brother, because the hearts of the saints have been refreshed through you." Yes, refresh my heart in Christ. Listen, I know it's tempting to withdraw from the body of Christ. I know. I know that you can be tempted to not make gathering on the Lord's Day with the Lord's people the highest of priorities in your weekly schedule. But I'm afraid that when you do that, you deprive yourself of the fellowship of believers that God uses to encourage you and strengthen you. I know sometimes it's a discipline, it's a spiritual discipline to gather on the Lord's Day. I know it's a habit to be here and it's an easy habit to break. But if it's a discipline, it's a reflection of your values and convictions that you want to be with God's people on the Lord's Day to worship Him and to encourage others. And to withdraw from God's people for any particular reason or for any length of time is to short-circuit the means by which God may want to refresh you. It could be that you cutting yourself off from the people who are gathered to worship is cutting yourself off from the rest that you think you're going to get if you just sleep in on Sunday or if you just do something else on Sunday. This past week I was in Colleyville, Texas, and um, we were with believers and church planters from... Burkina Faso, Lusaka, Zambia, uh, some via audio in Israel, believers and church planters from Montreal, New York City, uh, Las Vegas, Portland, uh, all over the Pacific Northwest, and then the believers in Dallas, Fort Worth. And we were just in a room, 60, 70 people. And we would sing, and we would read the Word, and we would pray for each other. And we would do that for three or four days there. Listen, part of my refreshing came from watching the Eagles beat the Cowboys while I was at a Mavericks basketball game. And I stumbled into a hallway TV screen, and it was like the last three minutes. I'd missed the game, and and yet there were 50 Cowboys fans just, yeah, yeah, yeah. And then secretly watching them, like, you know, get deflated. It was 
that's just me. I don't think the Lord did that. I think it was part of my own refreshing. Uh, that may be an issue I need to deal with God about, but but a better part of the refreshing came from just being with believers, hearing what God's doing around the world, hearing what God's doing in Zambia, hearing what He's doing in Israel, listening to this audio recording of this faithful pastor uh, in Israel named Zev, who's about 15 miles south of the border of Lebanon. They're feeding 500 soldiers a day. The churches that we gathered with had sent $20,000 in the last two weeks to support this. And he's giving us audio. There's rockets flying overhead. And yet the Lord is blessing our work. And and we're listening to this. And I've got uh, maybe 10 or 20 messages from this guy that he'll send us an audio on WhatsApp. And, And just being with believers, hearing their stories, watching how God is protecting and working and using them in other parts of the world. I was refreshed this week by being with believers. Listen, if you're in a season of exhaustion, fatigue, trials, struggles, those three things, engaging and emptying yourself out, allowing the Spirit to fill you and use you in ministry positions, ministry places, not neglecting the Word of God and not neglecting to meet with the believers on Sundays and during the week in your small groups, we had a day of prayer and fasting Friday, and, and I, I walked up at 5.55. If I'm honest, it was like 6.02, but, but I walked up, and I was supposed to have the door open by 6, and there were five or six brothers at the door waiting for me to open it. And I was just so encouraged to see by the time 8 o'clock came, there had already been 10 men and women who cycled through to, to get prayer and fasting guides or to, to pray on site. These are the things that renew us and refresh us when we do these kinds of ministry things together. And I can see in some of your eyes that you're really tired. right? Maybe it's me preaching too long, but but some of you have been through long, difficult seasons of ministry and you need to be refreshed. Take heart. God often refreshes His people. Lord Jesus, we love You for that. Your Word tells us that a smoldering wick He will not snuff out. A broken reed He will not throw out. We thank You that, that in Your mercy You delight to renew your people and to refresh them in your presence and by your people and by your word. I pray that you would do so today for those who are weary or for those who have been through a difficult time or for those who are about to go through it. Give them grace and strength. Your word tells us thus far has the Lord brought me and this is my Ebenezer this far. We thank you that you are faithful to walk with us. Psalm 23 describes you are our shepherd. You lead us and you guide us beside still waters and the green pastures. Your mercy and your grace, they comfort me. We thank you for that, Lord. Thank you for the care in which you care for your children. In Jesus' name, amen.